0: Hey, y'all, and welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren, and this is week two of our Easter study called Fulfilled, The Unexpected Story of the Redeemer. We are studying through Jesus's final-ish week through the words of Matthew, and I'll admit, this week was a lot. There were 75 verses in 10 sections. Some of these sections are worthy of their own study, like Passover and the anointing at Bethany. So as I began to study and focus on this chapter this week, I really wanted to focus on two areas. One, adding some additional cultural details and background. And two, focusing on how this passage shows Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I was blown away by how many references to the Old Testament there were in these 75 verses. It is one of Matthew's purposes behind the gospel. And not only does he point to the Old Testament about 60 times, he even uses the word fulfill more than any other biblical author. So this week became an exercise in applying the contextual lens through which we are studying. Here's week two on all 75 verses of Matthew 26.
1: Welcome to week two of Fulfilled, the unexpected story of the Redeemer. We are taking a look at the last week-ish of Jesus's life through the words of Matthew. And today we are in Matthew chapter 26. Um, we have a um, a lot before us tonight because this chapter is 75 verses long. And in my Bible, it's separated into 10 different sections. And so Matthew has um, quite a bit to say um, in the story to kind of tell us. So Um, I want to let his words kind of um, dictate tonight um, where we are going, but I want to remind us before we start kind of the lens, this title is of this study is called fulfilled because Matthew writes with this heavy emphasis toward the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old Testament. And we saw that last week and we're going to see it heavily this week. Um, And we really want to keep our eyes and our minds focused on that as we are studying, um, because that was the intent with which he wrote. Um, He quoted more Old Testament scriptures than any of the other gospel writers. So let me pray, and then we will dive in with Matthew 26. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word, and to discuss, and to learn, and to grow, and to see you. Lord, thank you that you reveal yourself in your word and that you come and you teach us and help us remember what we have heard i pray that you do that with for us tonight lord may your truth um fill my mouth and my words and lord may it go out and accomplish the purpose with which you have set forth in your name i pray amen all right let's jump in chapter one uh, chapter 26 first one when this is the plot to kill jesus in my bible when jesus had finished all these sayings he said to the disciples you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas or Caphas, depending on um, how you want to translate that and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, lest there be an uproar among the people. So um, right off the bat, when we see this phrase, when Jesus had finished all these things, these are transitional words that point us to um, understanding the context. So when Jesus had finished saying all these words, so that tells us to point back and to look at chapter 25, 24, 23, 22. um, Jesus is teaching through um, and saying a lot of things. He's debating with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so this is a continuation of the previous section. Um, And then Jesus predicts his own death, which again points to his omniscience, which points to the fact that he is God. And then Jesus is literally pointing, this is him showing the fulfillment. So we see the fulfillment here. Jesus is literally pointing to the connection between Passover and his death. And so he's kind of like a, him waving a flag saying, pay attention here, something's going on, pay attention. Um, and it also points us to uh, Matthew again writes with this how Jesus is the more and better Moses. He's kind of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses um, from the Old Testament. That more and better is often a phrase we use or the more perfect Moses. Um, those were Christ types in the old Testament that were shadows meant to point us to the true thing. And so we see that here that at the time of Passover, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery and Jesus is going to be doing the same at Passover, but more perfectly from slavery to sin. Um, and I want to just a quick note this would have been a really radical statement and Matthew doesn't really capture any of the reaction from the disciples or anyone nearby, but he actually says the crucifixion is at hand. Crucifixion was for criminals. And so there probably would have been shock. Um, this was a pretty radical statement for Jesus to, to tell them by uh, how he was going to die. Um, and then when we see two days before Passover, um, and it's important because of what we see in the next few verses. So the chief priests and the elders um, in the, the Sanhedrin, there's different levels, um, kind of sects of the religious leaders. Um, but they, this particular group of religious leaders, chief priests and elders, most likely of the Sanhedrin, um, come and they gather at the hat, at the home of the high priest and they plot to kill Jesus secretly. Um, Caiaphas is, um, was the high priest longer than any other high priest, um, in the first century. He was priest from AD 18 to 36. Um, And what's really significant about that is because at this time in history, um, they were appointed by the Roman government. Um, Previous to Rome taking over, it was all by birth. So um, we saw in the Old Testament and Exodus and um, in both the wilderness and tabernacle studies how um, the high priests were Aaron and his sons, and then his sons take over as high priest after his death. And so... That's how it was um, previous to this. But when Rome took over, they began appointing the high priest. And um, there was a general fear um, that if there was too much trouble, they would lose their power. And so what's really fascinating about Caiaphas is that he remained chief priest for so long that it points to his political prowess, that he was... Really good at his job, um, because history shows that after his death, there was a rapid succession of um, chief priests where um, they were constantly being replaced. And so that showed his cooperation with the Roman government, their trust in him. Um, and there was fear that if Jesus caused too much trouble, that the Roman government would come and take away their authority because it was Roman appointed authority that he had. So, t- um, so they're saying we cannot do this right now at Passover. Remember, Passover is a pilgrimage festival, which means everyone. Um, there is a law in Deuteronomy that says the people must take Passover within the city walls of Jerusalem. And so um, the population of Jerusalem at the time could have been as much as five times more than its normal population. Um, And so uh, if they were to arrest Jesus and to kill him in the midst of this festival, it could, riot could ensue and that would not look good favorably upon them and they would lose their position. So all of this I want us to remember is a power play. Okay. Jesus anointed at Bethany, verse six. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask a very expensive, expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus aware of this said to them, why do you trouble the woman for she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, whatever the, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we see where this happened at, in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. So if you want to take a look at your map, you can see that Bethany is not far from Jerusalem. Um, and it's most likely that because it was too, um, there were so many people trying to stay in Jerusalem that Jesus would have gone and stayed at Bethany. Um, Also, um, um, it was um, customary that when you had a guest in your house that a servant would wash their feet and anoint their heads with oil. So think about um, Psalm 23, where it says, you anoint my head with oil. Um, It's a sign of honor. Um, And we know that um, from Mark and John that this ointment was pure nard. Um, What's interesting here is that scholars estimate that her pint was about 12 ounces. Most people would have only had about an ounce of this. Um, And we know from John's account that it is Mary, the um, sister of Martha. And she has this gesture here that is out of abundance. Um, My NIV cultural background study Bible calls it shockingly extravagant. Um, And there's a lot more that can be said about the ointment itself and all of that. But what I want us to kind of take away is that she is pouring out a very precious and extravagant gift upon Jesus. Now, Jesus's response can very well be taken out of context. In fact, if we read this story in isolation um, and we do not um, do the work of cross-referencing within scripture, we can misinterpret this as God cares more about himself than he cares about the poor or that we should give our best to God um, and not to the poor. But Jesus is quoting a scripture from the Torah here. So again, we see, a reference to the old Testament and it's one that the disciples would have known. Um, it's Deuteronomy 15, 11, and it says there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you be open handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Um, Mark actually in his retelling of the gospel in Mark 12:7 12, seven and eight adds this for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. So Jesus isn't saying that the poor aren't important. He's saying you can help them whenever you want, but we must be careful that we are never doing, putting doing things over um, honoring Jesus himself. So we want to be mindful that we are not doing things, good things for Jesus without actually honoring Jesus himself. Um, she extravagantly poured out honor and glory on her Lord. And we should do the same. And right after that, we see Judas to betray Jesus. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, I want to go back to a point that I made last week in our context, talking about how biographies didn't have to be told in order. So if you notice um, at the beginning of that section about Bethany, it says now when Jesus was at Bethany, it didn't say then Jesus went to Bethany. So if you read um, John's account, you actually see that um, the anointing at Bethany, um, according to his account, came before the triumphal entry. And I think Matthew here, so Matthew in this chapter, we're gonna see him do some juxtapositions where he puts two characters next to each other, almost in comparison of their character. So he puts this here, um, after we just saw this extravagant outpouring Um, And John actually points a little bit more to Judas's character. So we often think, why would Judas do this? Um, But we see that in John 12, 6, um, it is actually um, Judas who makes that indignant comment against Mary at Bethany over the Nard. He says, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the mini bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it and so we see this this juxtaposition of these two people where we see this woman who is willing to give her her absolute finest possession over over jesus and honor his body and honor his head and honor him as their guest um next to judas who um is a thief and who is selfish and he goes and says, I've had enough. I want, what will you give me? He goes to the chief priest and says, What will you give me? And he says, um, They say that they'll give him 30 pieces of silver. And what's really fascinating is that Mary's gift was worth about 300 denarii, which would equal a whole year's wages. But Judas's um, 30 pieces of silver would have equaled about a third of that. And so we see this juxtaposition of the value and the worth that this woman put on Jesus versus um, Judas's payment. Now, when Judas goes to the chief priest, that changes the timeline um, because now they have an inside man. I feel like this is a, a great suspenseful movie here. They have an inside man who's able to help them be able to do this in secret so that they can avoid a riot. So He is now looking for an opportunity when he can betray Jesus. Um, Verse 17, Passover with the disciples. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So we see a very similar story to what we saw last week with the donkey and the colt saying, go, you're going to find it this way. Say this thing, do it, and it will happen. And they go, they do it, they see it, and they walk in obedience.
0: When it was evening,
1: he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, sorrowful. And began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been even better if that man had not been born. Jesus would Judas would betray him. Sorry, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Um So we finally arrive at Passover and um, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are celebrated in succession. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts with Passover. And so it's a total of about eight days of feasts. So sometimes it's listed as Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes it is, they're kind of all lumped in together. but they commemorate the leaving of Egypt because it was on the 10th, the night of the 10th plague. Remember, they painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and that um, the death angel passed over them instead, um, and they were spared from the death of the firstborn. Um, And then uh, Pharaoh in his sorrow sends them away and says, um, that's it, go get out of here. And so they leave in haste and it talks about how their bread was not leavened. So today, most cases we use yeast to leaven our bread. Um, but they would have done what's called a natural leavening process where bread rises over the course of like 12 to 24 hours. So if any of you have ever made like a sourdough or a naturally leavened bread, um, It takes a long time because it uses natural bacteria in the air in order for it to rise. Um, My husband makes sourdough and it's delicious, but it's time consuming. So we don't make it all that often, but that is why it was unleavened. Um, It's not like they put yeast in it and they had to leave before the yeast rose. It's because it's a lengthy process for them to leaven their bread. Um, And so because they leave in haste, they have unleavened bread, and now they have this festival of unleavened bread in which they celebrate the leaving of Egypt and Passover. Um, So when you see that kind of together, so the first day of unleavened bread, it's actually, they kind of lump sometimes them together into that. So it's not saying Passover has passed and this is the next day. Um, It's actually part of the entire festival. So um, there's a moment, um, Jesus again says what's going to happen. We see him point to um, his omniscience, his ability to see both um, into their hearts, but also what is coming, um, which points again that he is God. And there's a moment in the Passover meal when the leader would um, dip the bread or the matzah into the bitter herbs and distribute it to the other people at the table. Um, and the person who had the highest status would dip first, which means that if Judas were dipping at the same time as Jesus, that it would be seen as disrespectful, and I find that really fascinating given what we've seen of his character and kind of his attitude. Um, The other thing, too, we see um, just culturally reclining at table. So, um, it was a, it was a posture or a position of laying back on your left elbow and having your right hand to eat. And so there was kind of this relaxed nature that would um, kind of, of this comfort of being able to recline at the table. So that's because again, they didn't have tables and chairs. Um, They weren't sitting like the last supper photo, um, painting all in a row, probably. <laughs> so they were gathered around the table and they were reclining, they were laying back sitting. Um, so, um, we see this is, um, possibly though, so Jesus, um, says, um, he who's, uh, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man who, by whom the son of man is betrayed. And, um, this might be a reference, this actual action might be a reference to Psalm 41, nine, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And so we see this Psalm of David kind of pointing to this idea of, um, eating bread together, but yet being betrayed by that person. Um, and then Matthew um, points back to Isaiah 53. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to revisit Isaiah 53 over and over and over. This is a messianic prophecy. Um, it's called, you might've, um, it, you might've heard it called the man of sorrows. You're going to read verses and go, oh, I've heard that verse before because we quote it quite a bit. Um, but Isaiah 53, nine says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth so we see Jesus innocent um, being betrayed here even though he had done no violence and he had spoken no deceit no lie um, and we kind of see too that this is where Matthew is writing with the assumption that everyone um, reading this is Jewish and understands the meaning. So there's a lot in here that we have to kind of maybe dig a little bit more to discover. So let's move on to the Lord's supper. I feel like I'm going quick here, rapid succession, but it's kind of also how Matthew wrote it. So we're just going with Matthew here, uh, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take my, take eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it, all of you, for it is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So at Passover, um, and there's a lot, I mean, this is a study and a teaching in and of itself. Um, and in my um, wilderness study, there's a point where you go through, or um, where you go through kind of Passover and you pull some of the things that you see that also parallel with Jesus's death. Um, but there's a retelling of the Exodus story. And so if Jesus is retelling the Exodus story, he's telling the story, the prophecy of himself. And then um, there's a point in the meal where um, everyone takes a piece of the broken matzah. So the matzah is broken and it reminds them of the Passover lamb who's, who's, uh, was broken for their salvation. So we see, um, pointing, uh, this pointing to them. So when Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you, he's literally saying, I'm the Passover lamb that has come for your salvation um, and then um, he takes the cup. Now there are four cups in a traditional Passover Seder. Um, and Luke twenty two twenty tells us that this is the third cup that Jesus takes. Um, it's also called the cup of redemption. And so it is a symbol of the coming Messiah. And so when he says, this is the new covenant, this, um, this, is the blood of the new covenant, which I have poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He's literally saying, I'm the Messiah. This is about me. I have come here to do this. And so we see again, Matthew pointing to Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah is coming, that he is, Jesus is the Messiah they have been waiting for. one of the pastors at my church was preaching this past weekend, he said, history is prophecy. And he, um, we've been going through kind of the Old Testament covenants leading up to Easter. And I really um, coming on the heels of studying the wilderness and studying the tabernacle. I thought that was such um, a powerful picture because we see how the history in the Old Testament is a prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah to come. Um And so we see that how Passover came through Moses, that Jesus is now offering us a more and better remembrance through the Lord's Supper. It's um, a prophetic memorial that has now been redefined in Jesus. And there's so much more we could go into here, but I want to read this quote from Alexander McLaren, um, who is an 1800s um, pastor, um, wrote... The fact that Jesus put aside the Passover and founded the Lord's Supper in its place tells much both about his authority and its meaning. What must he have conceived of himself who bade Jew and Gentile turn away from that God appointed festival and think not of Moses, but of him? What did he mean by setting the Lord's Supper in the place of the Passover if he did not mean that he is the true Paschal Lamb? that his death was a true sacrifice and that his sprinkled blood was safety, that his death inaugurated the better deliverance of the true Israel from a darker prison house and a sorer bondage that his followers were a family and that the children's bread was the sacrifice, which he had made. Jesus is the true Passover lamb and that, um, I feel like um, he is building this layer um, of understanding so that when we take um, communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, that we do so with this lens of understanding what he was doing and that he was breaking the bread as a symbol of himself and that he was taking the cup, that this was a new covenant that he made with us. All right, let's continue. So Jesus foretells Peter's denial. That's our next section. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So remember last week we talked about the Hallel being the um, Psalm 113 through 118 um, that was sung throughout And so the the latter half of that, 115 through 118, was sung at the end of the meal. So when they had sung a hymn, they had sung the Hillel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me for this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So they go to the Mount of Olives. And again, you can look on your map and see just outside the Jerusalem walls. We can see where the Mount of Olives was. And then we see Jesus um, quoting another prophecy here, Zechariah 13, 7 says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, in this context, he's talking about false prophets, but um, here he is referencing and telling them that they will do the same out of fear because of what they are about to go through. And um, I want us to continue to not judge the disciples for their responses, because we do not know how we would respond in those situations, but to um, approach them with understanding and with humility, recognizing the own places where we have scattered ourselves when um, we have been in situations where we have been filled with fear or we have been um, allowed anxiety to take over or where we have allowed pride to step in. Um, And then he says that he's going to, he foretells that he's going to be raised up and that he's going to go to Galilee. Um, and then he talks about Peter telling Peter that he is going to deny him. So again, we see his omniscience. Um, all right, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. We're getting there, y'all. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be um, James and John, he began to be sorrow- sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face, praying, saying, pray and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then the disciples, he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise. Let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. So we now find them in the garden of Gethsemane, which would have been on the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane means olive press. So even this location is pointing us to Isaiah 53, five, where it says he was crushed for our iniquities. And so even the place where he is, is pointing to this idea of pressing in this idea that he is being crushed for our iniquities. I'm gonna to get to that in just a second. So he says to eight of the disciples sit here. Um, and then he goes a little further taking Peter, James and John. And it just says that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. The Greek word for sorrowful means very intense pain. It's translated grief. Like he was grieved by what he was beginning to experience And that he was troubled, he was distressed, which comes from a root word to be heavy, to be very heavy. Um, He is the God who grieves over our sin. Um, Isaiah 53:4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How great that weight must have been. When I think about him taking on the weight of every sin, of everyone, That had ever been committed what grief that must have caused to see and understand that this was not the way it was intended to be but yet because we chose to be our own gods we chose our own way um we he he had to come and take on the sin For us, because there we were not able to do it. The blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices weren't enough to cover us. And so, if God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, then Jesus had to come. And so, he comes and bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And he tells his disciples to stay here and stay awake. And then he goes a little bit further. Luke tells us that he goes a stone's throw away. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so we see Jesus resolve to do what God's will is. Now, I tend to think that sometimes we think of Jesus as a reluctant savior, one who was like, listen, I don't really want to do this, but if this is the only way I will do it. But I don't believe at all that is what Jesus is, because we see in other places, and this is why it's important that we don't just read one passage, but that we continue to um, look throughout Scripture, um, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. So, if we read through the Book of John, we see time and time again how Jesus—he points to the fact that Jesus laid his life down, that nobody took it from him, that when he's in the garden, he steps out, um, he does not hide, and so. I think this is more about modeling a posture of submission, even in grief, even in a hard place. Um, he is speaking truth over them because of what they're about to face. They're about to suffer. They're about to go through grief. And we see that they're already carrying a deep grief. Um, I think a lot of times I grew up reading this passage going, goodness gracious, these disciples like couldn't even stay awake and pray. But Luke 22, um, 45 says, when he rose from prayer and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Um, And then if you read John 13 through 17 and you read all the things that Jesus had just told them, y'all, they were seeing Jesus begin to carry all of the weight of our sin. They could see his grief and that grieved them. Um, I don't know if y'all, any of y'all have ever been through something that is really hard or um, is traumatic or um, you're just in deep grief to the point where you can't even keep your eyes open. Um, This happened to me um, at one point last year. It was just a a situation where somebody said something and it had been a repeated, constant kind of um, uh, thing in my life with this particular person. And something happened again and it just like the grief that I felt over the situation, I found myself laying on the couch, just unable to open my eyes. And I thought, what a tiny little fragment that must have been for the disciples to see the sorrow of Jesus, to feel the grief and to see what he was, agon- like what he was beginning to take on, that, that it was so hard for them that they couldn't even keep their eyes open And then the hour had finally come and Judas arrives, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Verse 47, while he was still sleeping, Judas came, one of the 12, and with a great crowd of the swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once saying, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, what do you do what you came to do? And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus outstretched his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then, uh, but how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against, as, uh, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so we see um, here the Roman soldier, or sorry, the um, Levite temple guards, the religious leaders come to er arrest Jesus. Most likely it was not Roman soldiers. Um, And then um, it was customary to greet someone with a kiss. And so we see this as the sign that Judas gives um proverbs 27 6 says faithful are the wounds of a friend profuse are the kisses of the enemy um i actually really like the amplified version um it says faithful are the wounds of a friend who corrects out of love and concern but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful because they serve his hidden agenda and so we see the kisses of the enemy coming um with the hidden agenda of judas and Jesus. Calls Judas a friend. Now, I thought this was interesting because as I kind of dug a little bit deeper, that Greek word is used three times in Matthew, and it's kind of like friend with a jab, um, because it has um, it's someone that has an appearance of a friend that is acting in contrast to how a friend would act. So the three situations where we see it in Matthew is one to a um, servant who is complaining that his master is being unfair to a wedding guest who will not wear the proper attire. Um, Both of those are parables. And then here is a supposed follower instead turning him into the authorities. And I can only imagine Peter's indignation. I mean, he has been living. uh, So we see in John, um, John names that um, it's Peter who cuts off the ear Um, and the other disciples too. But um, they have been living, and traveling, and with this guy for three years, and that he would betray them. He wasn't just betraying Jesus, he was betraying them too, and so Peter is ready to fight, but then Jesus reassures him that this must happen, so the scriptures will be fulfilled, so he tells him that I have come to fulfill the scriptures, and there's no specific reference here, but kind of pointing to the whole idea of the messianic prophecy of the Old Testament, and then he says the same thing to the religious leaders excuse me and then the disciples do as jesus foretold they scattered um isaiah 53 verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so they take jesus to caiaphas um and the council we're getting there guys we're almost there and then those who had seized jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following them at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards um, to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. though so many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, the man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy! What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So we go to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, what's important to know is that this is not how a trial was to be run. It was not to be kept in um, secret. It was not to happen at night. Um, and it certainly was not supposed to happen at the judge's house. They were supposed to take place in the day and in a normal public place where they would hold trials. And notice, so we can already see all of the twistedness of um, them, but then it also says they were seeking false testimony, They, w- but they weren't just seeking a, any false testimony. They needed a false testimony that would lead to a death sentence. And so... Um, it really shows us the corruption of the religious leaders because their authority had been challenged. Um, There were many bearing false witness, but it wasn't bad enough until they found the other two. And when they questioned him, Jesus remained silent. Now this um, fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And then he point blank asked him, are you the Christ, the son of God? And his response is a claim to be God and Messiah. Um, he quotes two scriptures here. Psalm 110, 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a, foot, a footstool. So we see, um, he had actually just quoted that scripture earlier in the week when he was having a debate with the um, religious leaders about the Messiah. And so that would have been familiar to them. Um, and then Daniel 7 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. This is a messianic prophecy found in the book of Daniel, and they would have been familiar with this, and so when he says he's coming on the clouds, he's pointing to this prophecy saying, my kingdom is coming, now to them, that would have been the ultimate threat because it means they are losing their kingdom. And so um, at that, he rips off his clothes. He claims that they are um, tore his robes. He doesn't rip off his clothes. He tears his robes, which is a sign of blasphemy, which is a sign of mourning. Um, and they say um, that he deserves death. And then they begin to, um, to hit him, to spit in his face. Um, and to mock him. And um, we see in Isaiah 53, four, we read the first part, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Our savior being beaten and mocked um, as he is getting ready to go and um, even cover the sins of those who are are doing it to them. We have one final little story here. Peter denies Jesus. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied, uh, denied it before all of them saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out, Uh, to the entrance another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders this man was with Jesus of Nazareth and again he denied it with an oath I do not know the man and after a little while the bystanders came up and said to Peter certainly you are one of them for your accent betrays you then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know the man and immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows You will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Um, This is a reminder to us and to Peter that Jesus is God. Because again, his omniscience, his all-knowingness, that he knew this would happen. And then when it happened, it reminds Peter of who Jesus is. And um, I want us to make sure that we hold this story in our brains as we flip to Matthew 27 next week because we see another juxtaposition here between um, Judas and Peter. Um, In uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary says, Peter's sin was aggravated, but he fell into the sin by surprise, not as Judas with design, but conscience should be to us as a crowing of the cock to put us in the mind of the sins we had forgotten Peter was thus left to fall to abate his self-confidence and render him more modest humble compassionate and useful to others what we see is Peter had pride Peter thought he would not do that and then in the moment in the heat and the pressure and the fear overtook him. He found himself responding in ways that he didn't even expect him to re- his own self to respond. And he recognized his sin. He was, um, we must remain alert. We must make sure that we are not positioning ourselves with people or in places that would cause us to act in ways that are contrary to what God has called us. And that's not living in a bubble but to not allow the fear and the pride and all of those things to, um, to overtake our ability to think rationally and keep our minds focused on Christ. We must live in a posture of surrender and recognizing our reliance on him. Um, and Peter repented y'all, like we think about how like awful it was that he did this, but his response says so much that he saw his sin and he fell and he wept bitterly. I believe he was repenting. And we see in John, this beautiful restoration of Peter into service. And Peter doesn't deny Jesus again. Y'all he's in some really tough places. If you read the beginning of acts, like he's in jail, he's arrested. He's testifying before these religious leaders who the same groups of people who he right here is denying him in front of. He is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to, knowing that it's going to cost him his life. Peter here repents. Matthew Henry continues. He, um, he wept bitterly. Sorrow for sin must not be slight, but great and deep. Peter, who wept so bitterly for denying Christ, never denied him again, but confessed him often in the face of danger. True repentance for any sin will be shown by the contrary grace and duty. That is a sign of sorrowing, not only bitterly, but sincerely. And I love that the very sin that Peter committed had already been laid on Jesus. That is what Jesus came for. He came to make a way of restoration, that he restores our relationship with God. Where there is separation, he has come to provide a way. He is the Messiah, the one promised who came to save, not to condemn. He is the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, who opened not his mouth, who was struck and crushed and pierced for our own sin. And even when we scatter and stray, He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He is the more and better Passover, the sacrificial lamb whose body was broken and his blood spilt in a new covenant that we get to partake of. And I'm so thankful for the fulfillment that we see because of Jesus Christ. Will y'all pray with me? Jesus, (laughs) that's a lot of words he gave us tonight god i just pray that there would just be something in these words something that would point us to the truth of who you are lord that we would remember that we do not have to carry our load alone that you have had it laid on you lord we know that you grieve with us because you know that this was not the intention for the world and yet lord you came running. You came because you knew that you could make the way toward restoration. You could make the way to a better hope. And Lord, I just thank you that you did that for us. I thank you that you came willingly, Lord, that you submitted yourself. Lord, that you humbled yourself so that we could partake of communion with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.
0: how Matthew orders this story, bringing contrast between people who love and follow and honor and praise Jesus and those who refuse to see. The juxtaposition of Judas and the religious leaders with the other disciples, Mary, Peter, it's challenging to me. It should be a, a call for all of us. Are we allowing our desire for power? And I'm talking even just having control over our own circumstances to keep us from seeing and worshiping the God who came running to save us. He came. He fulfilled. He established a new covenant with us. And today I want to close by reading Isaiah 53 because I want us to keep that at top of mind while we are He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out cut out that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death Make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen.